Rutgers legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. Today's guest is one I am super pumped to welcome back onto CPG, the always thoughtful and articulate author of Poker Satellite Strategy and PKO Poker Strategy, the co-host of the award-winning poker podcast, The Chip Race, none other than Dara O'Kearney. Dara is a lot of things. He's a former Irish international ultra marathon runner turned poker pro, an educator, a stable runner with past CPG guest David Lappin, a columnist, an extremely popular poker blogger, and oh yeah, he's also a world-class card player. He's also proof that it's never too late to not only get into poker, but to also compete at the very highest levels. There are too many greatness bombs in this conversation to count that are headed directly your way, including why Dara believes a lifetime of competing gives him an edge on the green felt, how to healthily manage your poker expectations, the one poker format you probably won't ever see Dara playing, and much, much more. And before you dive into this episode with the great Dara O'Kearney, I wanted to take a moment to let you know about my latest course, Neutralize River Leads. NRL is powered by mass data analysis, which means the strategies were built based on what folks are actually doing instead of what folks theoretically should do. Neutralize River Leads is a pay-what-you-wish mini-course so that you can experience the raw power of MDA at absolutely no upfront cost. You can grab your copy at ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash NRL by joining the daily newsletter. Now, without any further ado, I bring to you the always brilliant ambassador of Unibet Poker, the one and only Dara O'Kearney. Dara, welcome back to the show, sir. How you doing? I'm doing great. Real thrilled to be back. I've been looking forward to this all week. Um, always enjoy talking to you, Brad. And, um, yeah, uh, it's very early for me here. This is literally straight out of bed. So, as you you can see my webcam, you can see my bed head. Um, but yeah, let's, I'll, I'll 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 try and be lucid, nevertheless. It's like four p.m. for you, right? <laughs> it's three p.m. But to be okay, <laughs> give me. But to be fair, like I don't, I'm, I'm normally not in bed before seven or eight a.m. So, um, yeah, it's. Uh, how, how does that work with with the wife? Does she stay awake with you all night? Like, how, how does it? Are y'all like ships passing in the night? Very much so at the moment. Unfortunately, uh, this is Scoop Month, obviously, and the other big festivals are on as well. So, I tend to get up around this time, and then even if I don't have something booked, uh, like coaching or, or 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 this, I I go out for my run and I I have breakfast with her. But then it's generally time for me to start playing, um, and. Most nights I'm not done by the time she's um, she's going to bed, so it's pretty bad on that front. I have been I have made a resolution to, that as soon as this month is over, I'm going to make a more concerted effort to spend time with her because it's it's kind of ridiculous. Like I've been at home for a year, obviously with the the 
pandemic situation. And I'd say we probably spent less time together that year um, than in previous years. It's just been, I've been insanely busy, but it's pretty bad because like, we do actually like each other. <laughs> like, she's the person I most enjoy spending time with. And I think I'm the person that she also most enjoys spending time with. And we live in the same house. So it's kind of ridiculous that we spend so much time together. So I'm definitely going to try. That's my um, my media resolution, let's say. Why haven't you been able to spend much time together in the pandemic? I mean, you've been locked in with each other, right? We have been locked in. But... Um, I mean, essentially what's happened is online poker has just gone through this incredible boom again, because every, I know, I know in the States you're back playing live a bit now, but in Europe, we really aren't. So everybody who was playing live poker is now playing online poker. And that's just made online poker incredibly profitable for the past year. So at the start, there was a sort of a formal element of like, you want to play every hour of the day because it's, it's you know. We've spent years complaining about how online is getting harder and harder and the margins are getting smaller and smaller. And suddenly we had this uh, this situation where you had this vast new pool of players who were years behind the curve, essentially, because they hadn't been playing online for years. And we were all cleaning up. So we just sort of, a lot of us just switched into playing seven days a week again. And now I burned out very quick doing that. I kind of couldn't really do that anymore. But But even after I came out of that period, the sites kind of lured us back with the big series, you know, uh, the WSOP started on GG, uh, stars had all the big series. It seemed like every series would end and you think, okay, I'll take a break now. And then one of the other sites would announce another major series. Um, the sites had kind of figured out that that's the way to get recreational players in. They won't play the same tournaments every night, but they will play if you, if you, if you promote something as a special series. And, and a lot of the live events have moved online as well. Like here at Unibet, all our Unibet opens are now online. They're, they attract the same sort of people as would play at the live event. The Irish, the Irish Open went online on party poker. So there's just so much to play. But even when I came out of the period of playing every day, we've been doing so much of the content. Um, like I'm still, we're still working on the third book, working on a satellite course um, for one of the training sites, doing all the other stuff I'm doing with the, the chip race. And we also launched our new YouTube show, The Lock-In. So um, it's just the time seems to fill. Every week, I think, I, at the end of the week, I said, maybe I'll take an easy week next week. But then I look at my calendar and <laughs> lots, lots, so much stuff scheduled. Um, and that's just kind of the way it's been. Yeah, you, you take an easy week and then you realize the backlog of things that you've needed to do the last month but haven't gotten around to it. And then you realize your easy week turns into 50 hours of just playing catch up with stuff that you've been meaning to do but haven't been able to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like a lot of stuff gets postponed for for when there's a big series on um or i try and uh scale back on the coaching for example i tell students okay i can't coach the next couple of weeks but then as soon as the series is over they all come at me again and they all want uh, immediate sessions so yeah it's it's no rest for the wicked i guess is the is the phrase that applies here yeah but it does mean you're doing something right i guess if all your students are coming to you after the series ends you are you and barry working on a third book yeah we are yeah yeah what um, is it it, it, it's specifically on ICM this time. So essentially it's, it's, and it's focusing on two aspects of ICM, how to play final tables and how to play the money bubble of tournaments. Um, because it's kind of a midway point for us. Our first book is obviously about satellites and satellites are the most extreme form of ICM that you get in tournaments. And that completely warps the strategy. And then we wrote the book on PKO where the bounty element actually 
counteracts the ICM. So it it it, it forces you to be more aggressive and, and and go for it. So they're almost the opposite of satellites. And then I, I had a large number of questions. People asked me about like normal tournaments. What do you do in a normal tournament? So it's like somewhere in the middle. We came up with this concept of an ICM dial where in a satellite, it's turned up to the maximum and in a PKO, it's turned down to the minimum. But then in a normal tournament, depending on the payout structure and the, and the point of the tournament, somewhere in the middle. And how does that change the strategy? So the other thing which is exciting to us is that solvers are now, it's possible to account for ICM in the, in the post-flop solvers. But that's something which has never really been investigated deeply uh, by content. And that does change the strategy considerably as well. So it's it's because of that, we've it's taken us a lot longer than we thought, which is true of every book. Every time I start a book, I think we'll, we'll, we'll bang this one out really quick because we know what's going to go in it. And, it's, and then once we get into it, we start going, well, maybe we should talk more about this. Or um, So <clears throat> I, I initially thought this was going to be out in a few months, but... <laughs> it's more likely it's more likely to take the full year again. Uh I could yeah, have it's... told you that, Dara. I, I could have told you that you're gonna underestimate it because like I, I think like as creators, maybe that's our blessing and our curse that we the the blessing of underestimating means that we start things. The curse is that we always underestimate how long it's going to take. But once we've started it, we're like, well, shit, we're 30% in now. Like, there's no, there's no turning we're, back. We just yeah, got to finish we're, it. We're, we're, we're committed. Yeah, it's, I think there's actually an name for it. It's called planning policy or something where every project always underestimates the budget and the effort required. Uh, but, but by significant degrees to, to the point that I think on government projects, for example, what they do is, they get the experts to estimate how much they think it will cost, and then they multiply that by a number, like five or something. Because it's always that that's projects always run over over budget. It's definitely been that case for us. Like the, on the satellite book, I thought like this is going to be the easiest thing ever. I have so much satellite content already. I'll just give it all to Barry, and uh, voila, we will have a book. But <laughs> it was a lot more iterative than that. So yeah, I mean, I mean, you're completely right. We. Uh, we've also been sidetracked slightly because Barry's also working on the on the satellite video course with me, uh, which is going to be 15 to 20 hours of video content. And that's been quite time consuming as well. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 it'll all come out at some point. What's the what's the purpose of the satellite video course? Um, the original, like my, the the, um, the history of my content with videos that say it was it all sprung from a sort of a 20 minute training course a very quick training course i gave carlos welsh when i was staying with carlos uh in andrew brokos's house carlos was going off to play some satellites at the wsp so i i gave him uh the sort of really fast guide to how to play satellites and carlos being carlos he went off and wrote up this extensive document where he sort of crystallized the concepts <laughs> all the concepts that are sort of central to the book now like uh Is isn't that the best when like you give somebody something and they come back with like just a binder of 50 pages and you're like, how the hell did you do it this? was It was absolutely incredible. Like I literally, I, like I was going to bed as Carlos was going off to play and Carlos said, I'm going to play a software and I'm give me like some tips. But I sat down and gave him the essential in 20 minutes and then I went off to bed and I came back. Carlos told me he won his satellite and he'd also sent me this document, which he'd written up. It was incredible. So I used that document shamelessly as the basis for my um, seminar uh, on satellites. So that was the first content I did. And that had all the most important concepts. And when it came to the book, originally, I thought we'll just turn this into a book. Um, but then Barry identified, first of all, Barry uh, reorganized the information um, very intelligently. 
uh, like in this in the webinar, the approach I took was here's how you play the starting satellite, here's how you play the middle, and here's how you play the end. But the end is is, is all important satellites. That's eighty to ninety percent of the actual content. So Barry said, okay, we'll we'll, we'll switch it around and we'll do the end at the start because that's the stuff that's really important. Most people don't get all the way through a book. So the last thing we want them to do is to give up after they've read the, un the relatively unimportant stuff on how to play the mini beginning and middle stages. But he also discovered other areas where I, I needed to drill down in more detail. It got to the point where we had so much material that we thought, well, we, we can't really put out a thousand page book on satellites. That would um, <laughs> turn, out, turn off people on this like one niche type of tournament. So we, we drilled down to the stuff that we thought was most important. But then most of the questions we've got about the book have been people asking about us about stuff that we left out. So we realized there is actually a market out there for sort of just a complete brain dump on absolutely everything I know about satellites. And that's kind of the purpose of the, of the, of the video course. It's everything that's in the book, but all the other stuff as well. Um, literally everything I know about satellites. Yeah, so it's more expansive. Right. Yeah. Which is it's a smart way to go about it because, you know, satellite, your your satellite book, I imagine the target market would be recreational players or low, lower, lower skill level type of players. And if they were trying to buy a book on satellites and it was like a tome, I have a feeling they'd be like, OK, I just don't want to play poker anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's too much. Absolutely. We, 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 Barry was very good on that stuff because um, obviously Barry has experience with books in general. So um, we put a lot of thought into how do we structure that if people give up on the book halfway through. And like, I know from my own experience, I have hundreds of book of books and I'd say I've finished maybe three of them. Um, people do just reach a point in a book and they decide, okay, well, I've had enough of this book, I'll move on to the next one. So Barry put a lot of thought into how will we structure it so that if that happens, at least they'll have the essential thing. So like the, literally the first chapter of major content is what we call the 30-minute guide to satellites, which is all the important concepts explained at once. So even if people just read that chapter, it, it'll help their game enormously. And then we sort of go in, 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 in order of importance from there on. But actually, I think we did a good job, or at least Barry did a good job, because the number of people who said to me that they not only finished the book, but they finished the book in one sitting, where they literally sat down and started reading and just got to the end of it uh, has been incredible. So I think we probably did better on that front than a lot of poker books as well. We, we, we tried to write it in a readable, relatable style. We peppered in anecdotes, et cetera, uh, just to keep the audience uh, interested. You said the audience is recreational and very much is. It's, it's what I call smart recreational. We didn't dumb down the material anyway, but we, try to explain it in such a way that they would understand it and, and relate to it and then give specific examples as well um, and any, any relevant anecdotes I could think of. And I think, I, I think that's basically what worked. And we, uh, we took the same approach in the second book. The surprising thing to me has been the number of, even though that's the audience, the number of online grinders or even some, some high stakes people who said that they bought the book and, and, and got a lot, of, a lot of it. I mentioned in the, in the pre-chat with you that Apes, we had Ipsal on recently and he mentioned he bought the book and really enjoyed it. I know that Dietrich Fast, who plays um, high, super high rollers, also he bought the book for me personally in uh, Irish Open and, and demanded a discount as well, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you have to respect the hustle. Um, so a, lo a lot of those types of people came to me as well with specific questions about the content in the book. So I think we did a good job of explaining 
difficult, difficult concepts, which really weren't known outside the use satellite specialists in the world um, in such a way that it was very accessible to, to a wide audience. Yeah, I think there's a couple things going on here. The, the first is I understand because this is how I try to structure my courses and my training as well. I understand the struggle with simplicity and simplicity is much, much harder than complexity. And so when you're talking about like just putting in the most important things, that's, that's a difficult, difficult, difficult endeavor. And I do love, you know, Barry's journalistic side coming out of like, you know, what is it like the reverse pyramid where the most important stuff is like at the top of news articles and then it goes down to like least important stuff from there, um, just how they how they structured the articles themselves. And then the ape styles thing, which it's hard for me to gain more respect for ape styles simply because I respect him so much already. But the fact that he bought the book, I do respect greatly. And it's, again, this is another thing that I've been thinking a lot about because I have, you know, I have some high level players that are in my community and I've released my courses. And one of the courses that I released is like, it started at $99. It's doubled since then because I realized that it's just so insanely valuable. Some of the higher stakes people didn't buy it. And that was a little bit dumbfounding to me because it was like the the number one feedback that I got is like from people playing 100 or 200 in L that it, it pays for itself in like two days, right? And I'm like, basically the, the guys that are playing much bigger than 100 and 200 just kind of look at it and they're like, ah, whatever. Like, I, I know this spot. I don't want to plunk down the $99. But like in the instance of like Ape Styles, it's like a pot odds game, right? It's like he invested $10 and like an evening to read this book. And if there's anything valuable in there, it's going to pay for itself hundreds of times over. If there's nothing valuable, then you lost $10. It's like a, a no-brainer no brainer type of situation. And it sort of dumbfounds me how many pros that play for lots of money can't be bothered to investigate training that for what it's worth it is basically pennies. Um, it doesn't really cost them much of anything. Yeah, yeah. Just to echo what you said about it, it's like incredible respect for the for the guy that he's still looking for every place where he can get information from. And you do see that in other players too. Like the, the first really good review that we got on the book, which really kickstarted sales, came from Martin Mathis, who's one of the all-time great tournament players online. And he read the book. He bought the book right at the start, read it, and left just glowing review on Amazon. And at the time, I got I was really excited. I was Barry, this is absolutely incredible. And Barry didn't know who Marky was. Which, <laughs> yeah, Barry. The other tournament players know who the other tournament players are. And I said, no, trust me, this is, this, this, is, this is a big deal. Marty is one of the all-time greats. And Marty ended up winning the uh, party poker leader for for satellites. Uh, that year, they ran the PPL things. So he, Marty might be the best satellite player in the world right now. Um, yet he still read the book and 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 wrote about his enjoying um, thing. The, the I've been in poker long enough now. <clears throat> I, mean, I think I'm into my 14 years of professional. That I've seen players come and go. I've seen guys rise to the top, <clears throat> be absolutely you know regarded as the best, and then three years later they're gone. And I've seen other guys who sort of like are continually, not exactly under the radar, but 
let's say flying on a lower trajectory, people like Bodog Gary or Ape Styles have been around forever as well. Uh, although Ape Styles just seem to keep ascending. And the difference I see between the two groups is the guys who, who who sort of achieve longevity, they're the guys who keep learning, who never think that they have it all figured out. And they're always looking for ways to improve and better ways to study. And I think that's the absolute key to longevity. It's humility, right? Like, And it's also what, what's ultra interesting about this is that somebody like Ape Styles can arguably get more out of uh, your satellite book than a recreational player who just buys it, you know, at the store and brings it home because Ape Styles knows how to execute and he knows what's going on. Like he, he can see the picture much more clearly. And when you play poker at, at a high level, you can oftentimes gain more from the content because you see more of what's going on, right? Like I, I always say that like, I don't love plain explained videos because it's very surface level. There's a filter from brain to mouth and you're going to leave out data points. You're going to leave out variables. And because of that, somebody who's inexperienced that just watches a plain explained video may not only not gain everything they could, but also gain things incorrectly. Um, it, it could be damaging because they internalize a concept and they try to apply it in inappropriate situations. They don't understand like why this is not working, right? But like if I watch a plain explained video, then I've got a pretty good idea of why someone is doing what they're doing and understanding the data points that they're dealing with and prioritizing. And so I can kind of get a much better picture of why they're doing what they're doing, which is much more valuable. And just that's sort of the rule in poker is that the higher level you play, the more you can gain out of training content. And then the irony becomes that, you know, the higher level you play, the more beneath, uh, <laughs> beneath you content can feel so they don't always seek it out. Yeah, I agree completely. I, I actually had a, uh, a chat last night with a guy that I've gotten very friendly with on, on, on social media. Um, he, he bought my book almost when it came out and he's definitely one of the people who seems to have got the most out of it. But he said to me uh, last night, and this is what relevant to what you said, that he's recommended the book for all his friends, but he's come to the realization that not everybody gets the same amount out of it. He has one friend who, you know, read the book, liked the book, felt he got something from the book. And yet when he, when he tells him hand histories from satellites, he's clearly misapplying or not correctly applying the information that's in the book. That's a lot of people, unfortunately. That's why I always say like our target audiences, <clears throat> smart recreationalists, because there are some people who, you know, focus just fun and, uh, or a game for them, and that's fine, but they won't necessarily get the same amount out of the book. The people who get who, who, who do seem to benefit are the people who are genuinely mostly interested in poker as a strategy game and are interested in figuring out what the strategy is and then applying it. But everybody has different ability levels in that, in, in that area. So it's not, you know, I would never claim buy the book and you'll instantly turn into a satellite crusher that's not the case for everyone or probably even for most people well the value of a thing is based on the consumer and not the creator i think that's something that's you know i always try to to bear in mind and when i hear some of the more old school pros that are like never talk strategy ever with anybody um don't put it out there you're yeah. killing killing the game yeah. I, the first thing that all I always think about is like, so you've never tried to teach somebody poker, right? Like that's that's what they're saying when they say that because if you truly understood 
how difficult it is to communicate and transfer advanced concepts, you wouldn't really, that wouldn't be a hill that you die on. Amused me when it was, there was like this idea that, that you could somehow keep all the secrets out of the public domain forever just by not ever talking about strategy. It's like, sorry, it doesn't work like that. Information inevitably leaks out. Yeah. There's a natural information. And most people will misapply it. And that's just the reality. Yeah. That's sort of like, a, I believe, I can't remember what book I was reading it in, but it was talking about blackjack and how like casinos were terrified when card counting like became a thing and was like out there and they were like banning people. And then they realized that like all the strategies were being misapplied by almost everyone. And so they changed tactics from banning people to handing out blackjack cards to people yeah. as they enter the casino, right? Like it's, it's a hilarious like about face, but that's what they, that's what the, the casino knew. Yeah, we, we, we got this when we brought out the book. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. My original motivation for writing the book was partly because I wasn't playing satellites on, online anymore. The satellites had kind of died as a format. Um, what had happened was there were too many decent regs and they were basically just killing the, killing the life, the recreational players. So I, they just weren't as popular anymore. So I started playing normal tournaments where um, the recreations were. So I, I wrote the book and people sort of said to me, like, this is ridiculous. You're letting out all the secrets. You're going to make satellites even tougher. But actually the, 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 the reverse happened because, you know, a lot of recreational players had stopped playing satellites because they felt like that they were just getting beaten up. But then they read the book and now they feel competitive again. So they jump back into the pool. So there's a, the, the, there's always going to be the case that the best players have some sort of edge over the weaker players. But it, ha- but if it's too much, if it's very, very clear that uh, the best players are just way better and the others are way worse and they, and they can't win as a result, the game stops. It, it essentially turns into chess where the better player always wins and the, and the, and the, the other player knows that they have no chance and therefore won't play for money. So you kind of have to redress that information imbalance. And we've been quite keen to not just put the book out, but like we put ex- excerpts out of the book on 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 different uh, online sites, for example, on Pokestar School, etc. Because it is important to educate people to the point where they feel that they can compete. You can't have a situation where they all feel that they're just completely outscaled by by the professionals. Yeah, and I mean, I think ultimately what it boils down to are the people that have this fear that poker is just going to be unbeatable or that the game is getting ruined. I think those are people who are probably hanging on for dear life at the at like barely profitable and are very afraid of people passing them. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, my message to those people is like, buy the training invest into learning and and get better like let's let's not count on nobody ever catching up let's just count on getting better yourself so that you know you always have an edge yeah yeah just keep working keep working work harder like the the whole advantage of being a professional is that you can devote far more time to study and learning and, and consuming content than the the average recreational can so therefore, so long as you keep doing that, you will you you will keep maintaining reg. They'll keep getting better, but you'll keep getting better as well. Rather than just saying, okay, well, uh, I'm this good now, but I'm not. I don't want to put in any time or effort into getting better. I just want to stay this good, and I hope everybody else stays below my level. That's never going to happen. Like that just isn't the way online poker works. It's an it's it's a very fast track evolution pool where if players are losing too fast, they drop out very quickly. 
live, live poker is less like this because in live poker, losing players, it's not as clear that they lose. But if you're a losing player online, you have to keep redepositing. And that's a, an immediate uh, indicator to you that you are losing. And you can tell very quickly by looking at your deposit history how much you've lost. So losing players, players who are losing too fast just get dragged out of the pool all the time. So the players who are left in the pool are either players who are getting better or, or players who already had an edge. So it's never going to be the case that you can simply say, right, I'm, I'm a winning player now. This is my, I have a 30% ROI in, in online tournaments or 10 BB per 100 in cash. And if I just stay like this, I'm going to stay making this return uh, forever. That will never be the case. The competition gets better and better over time. The, the last year has been a bit of an anomaly in the sense that we've had a brand new influx of um, less experienced online players. But again, you know that's not going to last. Um, as soon as the world goes back to any sort of reasonable normality, online will go back to being the way that it was. One of the interesting things to me as well is the players who put in a lot of time and effort in the last year studying and also putting in volume online, I think they're going to absolutely crush when life comes back. Because the difference in skill between that type of player and the player who's just sat around doing nothing for the last year waiting for live focus to come back, it's going to be absolutely stark. This has been a, a year of accelerated improvement for a lot of people. There's a lot of the recreational players that I coach who I would say are probably now better than the average pro was a year ago. So when they go back to playing live, it's going to be a real shock, I think, to people who have just sat around uh, taking it easy for the last year, uh, just how many new good players there are out there. Yeah, it's first, firstly, it, it's inexcusable. If, you, if your job, if your occupation is poker, it is inexcusable to not maintain your edge. Um, it's inexcusable to think that somebody that has a, a career that they spend 50 hours working at every week that you can't, that you can't maintain an edge over them. I, I think that's like first and foremost, like you have a natural, you have a, a, a natural ability to create an edge because you have more time to devote to the game. And so like that to me is, yeah, that part of it inexcusable. And secondarily, um, I, I don't know when this episode will be released, but tactical Tuesday this week was, my student John going back to playing live poker after not playing for the past year. And, you know, he was shot taking at 510 when live poker shut down. And he's going back. He went to Vegas to play at the Bellagio and he's playing 510. And he was a little bit nervous, which is, it's funny to me because he's been playing 1KNL online, like four tables and just absolutely destroying everybody. And then, He's like nervous about going back to play 510 Live. And I'm like, dude, just chill out. Like, you're fine. Um, he goes and just, he, he's like, wow. Like, I can't believe I was ever nervous about playing in this game. And now he's playing like the 1020 uncapped at Bellagio. In <laughs> five days, he's realized like, oh yeah, this is this is good times. Yeah, shout out to John. I I also have the tactical Tuesdays with John. I actually on, on on my long run yesterday, I listened to the latest tactical Tuesday, which I guess is the one just before he went back to life, where you were sort of reassuring him you were the online crusher that they're all afraid of. They're going to uh, they're, they're going to fear you. Yeah, it's 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 very much like that. Like I have a I, I have a student who played lower stakes than John does online, and <laughs> she went to Vegas. Um, and initially she was playing two five. <clears throat> I'm feeling a little bit nervous about it. And now she's crushing 10.20 in almost no time. 
because there's the skill differential between live pros and like she keeps saying to me like there are live regs in the game they're they're big winning live regs but they make the most horrendous technical mistakes and you know they 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 get away with that because they don't get punished Um, the the competition that they're playing against doesn't have the skill set to punish them but if more players come from online that will change very quickly and you could have guys who who are crushing live for years and years are suddenly going to find themselves um, well behind the curve. Yeah, I mean, it, in my experience, live poker deteriorates skill. Uh, at least it deteriorated my skill. I can say that, like, when I played live for high stakes live for three or four years and then transitioned back to online, it was like, whoa, like, I've been sort of in stasis. Like, I haven't been growing like I should have been just because, like you said, people are not really going to punish me for making some more fundamental i'm not even going to call them mistakes because i don't think it's a mistake if you're not getting punished for it by the players you're playing against but when you move to the online streets and like you know you you cap your range with you know spr of two or what like they're going to attack you and they're going to make your life hell they're going to see things that other people will miss and then you know you realize like oh i i guess i I guess I haven't been working very hard on my game and I have to improve just to be a much lower stake online than I was crushing live. Yeah, yeah, completely. It's it, I, I've had a similar thing. Um, I mean, I've never played live poker as my main thing. It's always been sort of a diversion from the online. Um, and I found that a certain amount of live poker is good. It's a, it's a, it's a break for me from, from, from the online. And also, it's different. Um, the way I compare it is online, when, at least when you're a tournament player, online is like is more like speed chess, where you have to make the decisions really fast and, and you need to have your basic strategy honed. Live poker is more like over-the-board chess, where you can take a long time to think about your move. And sometimes I've had sort of insights where hand will happen live, and because I have nothing else to do except to think about it, I'll spend the next 20 minutes thinking about it, and I'll realize something which I didn't realize before, um, some strategic element. So... I found that useful. But for example, when I go away for a protracted series like the Eyes and Millions or the World Series, when I come back, I'm definitely rusty. And I do feel that my my level has dropped off because you just don't get in the same number of hands. You don't get in the same number of reps um, as, as you do when you're playing online. Yeah, you don't. And if you're gone for like years, which was the case for me because of Black Friday and losing faith in all the online poker platforms, I mean, it, it, it was a little bit shocking. And it took it took a couple of months for me to kind of get my footing again. But yeah, I think that like anybody out there that wants to crush live poker, I think putting some serious volume online, it doesn't even have to be like ultra high stakes. I think that you could train yourself playing 50 NL or 100 NL to be able to beat 510 live. I think that that's a pretty easy thing to do uh, if you so choose to do it. And so... Dara, let's shift gears a little bit and kind of go back to the beginning of your career. I want to ask you, who is your biggest influence in becoming a professional poker player? That's a really good question. I mean, obviously, I came to poker a lot later than most people. Um, But I played five-card draw as a kid, so I knew hand rankings, etc. I never really played it um, seriously until my early 40s. And the the motivation was to um, to take up something that if I put in a lot of time and effort, I could be competitive at. At the time, my running career was winding down. 
Um, and I knew that because of my age, it wasn't going to last much longer. And I was looking around for something else to do. I, I, I've always been very competitive. I've always done stuff um, and wanted to do it at a high level. I played chess at a high level as a kid. I played backgammon. I played bridge. All these things. I had different phases. And then even the running, which started as recreational. You know, I, I was literally the worst runner in Ireland probably when I started. And I ended up representing Ireland in, in, in ultra marathons. So there's always been that competitive drive. Um, so my, the initial influence was... Again, bearing in mind that I'm looking around for something to do uh, where age won't be as big a factor. And I saw the Irish Open on TV one night and, you know, people of all ages and sizes and shapes playing. And I thought, OK, well, that seems to be something that you can do uh, where age maybe isn't that big of a limiting factor. My brother was actually playing semi-professionally at the time. So I would say he was my first big influence because he taught me in, in one afternoon a very, very basic strategy, um, which I started uh, playing online and um, started winning right from the start. So he, he was a large influence, but I'd probably say longer term, the bigger influence on me was a guy called Rob Taylor, who was one of the top Irish online professionals at the time. And Rob and I became friends after a very ropey start where I put a bad beat on him in a big tournament and, and he reacted very angrily. Um, but we became very close friends and we were traveling around to tournaments together. And I learned a huge amount from Rob just on sort of like how to approach, to approach it professionally how to constantly be looking to improve your strategy, how bankroll management, tournament selection, all that stuff sort of came from Rob. So I would say Rob is the biggest influence. Could you tell me about the Irish community? Just like a little bit more in depth about the Irish poker community, because from the outside, it seems like it's a fairly tight knit group, but I don't really know what the reality is. Um, and, and it's, I've heard you know you and, and David speak very fondly about the Irish poker community. So, could you kind of go in depth about how that community works? Sure. Well, I'm very biased, obviously, because I am Irish, but I have lived all over the world and I've played all over the world, and I I do genuinely believe that the Irish poker community is 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 the best in the sense of the short the social experience. It's the best place to play because everybody is just looking to have fun, and there's there's just that sort of Irish humor that, 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 that undercuts everything at the table um, where people don't take themselves too seriously. Um, that's the first thing I would say about it. It's also, you know, we're a small country, uh, four or five million people, whatever it is, only a tiny percentage of people play poker. So an American friend of mine who was working for Full Tilt around the time that I started, he played on the Irish scene for a couple of years and then he moved over to Vegas uh, to play tournaments um, and he was playing two or three tournaments uh, in Vegas every year. And he said that the biggest difference for him was that when you play a tournament in Ireland, if you're playing very regularly, you know everybody, literally everybody at your table. But he said in Vegas, I could play three tournaments a day for a year and I wouldn't recognize a single person in that time. Just, it's constantly changing. So because everybody knows everybody else, there is a more genuine sense of community, I think. And also, people really identify you as part of the Irish poker community, I think. Um, when you're going deep in a big tournament, for example, it's very noticeable that the people who are most engaged are the Irish people back home. Uh, when I had my biggest result in Vegas, um, coming second in the WSOP, when I came back to Ireland, I couldn't believe the reaction. It was literally like coming back, having won an Olympic medal. Everybody wanted to talk about it. Everybody wanted to congratulate me. The same when the Chip Race won the um, the Global Poker Award at the at the Irish Open, which was a month month later. 
every almost everybody was coming up to congratulate us. So there's a real sense of community there, which I mean you do see in other countries, but I think part of it is just that we're a small country and everybody knows each other. But I think part of it is also just sort of the, the natural Irish thing of of emphasizing fun and the social experience over everything else. Now we've obviously produced a reasonable amount of top class players. I think I think a lot of people don't realize how small a country we are. Like I had an American ask me recently, how come there are more top British online players than Irish online players? And I said, well, they have 16 times our population. <laughs> it's, it's just a numbers game. Mm-hmm. And he was like, wow, it's, it's, it's that big. It's 16 times. Okay. Because in, in his mind, I think a lot of people look at Ireland and Britain on the map and they're roughly the same size. Britain's a bit bigger, but not too, you know, not too much bigger. And they think the populations are the same. But they really aren't. Like we are a very, very small country. We we have similar populations to countries like Lithuania and other small countries. But because we 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 shout on the world stage, we make a big stir for our size, so people think there are more of us than there actually are. So, I'm going to ask a question, and I I'm not prepared to ask this question. So I haven't done my research. It's only things that I have seen in media and stuff like that. I know that there have been conflicts in Ireland, right? Like with the IRA, with just that kind of thing. Has that spilled over into the poker community? How prevalent are those kind of, you know, conflicting ideologies amongst uh, just the Irish people? I would say zero spillover. At least in the, in Southern Ireland, which is where I live, uh, I mean the historical context here is that it's sometimes presented as a religious divide between Catholic and Protestant, but it really isn't. It just so happens that the native Irish are Catholic and remained Catholic, and the uh, the planters, the people who were put here uh, after the British invasion, were Protestant. So. It's very easy to identify it as a religious war, but it really isn't. Um, it's 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 more a case of displaced natives versus um, the people who displaced them. Now that situation resolved in Ireland a hundred years ago when Southern Ireland achieved independence from the north, and there was all there was there's almost nothing left now. I mean, there's a small Protestant minority in Ireland, but it's there's never been any conflict between Catholics and Protestants in Southern Ireland since. Uh, so we're kind of remote from the problems in Northern Ireland. The problems in Northern Ireland were that Northern Ireland remained part of the UK. They had a Protestant majority who wanted, who, who want and still want to remain part of the UK, but a significant Catholic minority uh, who, were, again, are the locals, the, the original locals. I mean, the, it's it's unfair to say that the Protestants aren't Irish now because they've been here for 300 years or whatever it is. But that that's the source of the conflict. But that doesn't seem to spill over into uh, poker at all. Now, Northern Ireland is weird because it's it might be one of the, the only places in the world where online poker is allowed, but live poker isn't. Uh, so there's no live poker in Northern Ireland, at least uh, officially. Um, there are underground games, etc. So at any tournament that you have in the South, you will have a huge number of players who come from Northern Ireland and they will come from both sides of the divide. Um, but to be honest, it's not an issue. Like we're not used to categorizing people as either Catholic or Protestant, for one thing. We literally don't know. Uh, it might be a bigger issue for 
for, for, for the people who are from Northern Ireland, but it never seems to spill over at the table into, into any sort of conflict. People argue with other stuff, but, but not uh, that stuff. So, yeah, that, that stuff hasn't impacted us at all. And it is fading now over time, obviously. We, 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 uh, they went to their, uh, their, their peace process up there 25 years ago now. And so that situation has calmed down. There's a slight danger it might flare up again because of Brexit, but I certainly hope not. But like I have literally no personal experience of that. I have never seen a Catholic and a Protestant arguing over over political ideology um, in my lifetime, not just at the poker table, but anywhere. Okay, so I guess that pretty conclusively answers that question. Where because there, there's this. I guess there's this thing that kind of happens with media in general. Like I, I live in Atlanta, right? And so last year the protests were very heavy here. And I, I live about two miles from the CNN building where they rioted and a police car was set on fire and uh, rocks and basically bricks were thrown at the CNN building. It cracked it. And it was just basically like chaos, right? And I get calls from my family who don't live in Atlanta and they're like, is it crazy there? Is everything like, is is it insanity? Like, are you safe? Mm -hmm. Um, And the reality is I live two miles away from it and never once saw anything. I I didn't see any protesters. I never saw any violence. I never saw any chaos. And ultimately what it turns out to be is, you know, there was chaos for about one minute and then the chaos dispersed and that was really it. But then when you, capture it on film and you spread it across the country on loop it looks like it's just non-stop 24 hours of just you know bedlam and it's just that's not the case it was like one minute and then it was just all done with yeah well 24 hour tv definitely has a lot to answer for because you keep seeing the same footage over and over and you think that's the reality but even before you know that the media just does always focus on the most sensationalized aspects and you looking from the outside you have no real sense of how big that is in the overall picture my my, my wife is french and when we met um at the time i was working in ireland but she was very very wary of moving to ireland because her only experience of seeing ireland in the headlines of bombs going off people getting killed and i had to explain to her well that's northern ireland it's a an actual different country to Southern Ireland, and we don't really have those issues. So, she, long story short, she, we, we we obviously did move back to Ireland, and within a month, she was telling all her friends back in France that Ireland was the most peaceful country in the world. Uh, like almost no crime, everybody was super friendly. There was literally no terrorism because that, that that wasn't a thing down here. It was a Northern Ireland problem. But you go sixty miles north of where we are into a different country, and yes, there were bombs going off. Um, and so on. But I think even that gets overstated because I, I obviously know a lot of people from Northern Ireland from uh, from poker. And they they say exactly what you said, that even though it was going on, it never greatly impacted them. Um, it was just something which was going on in the background. People people have a tendency to overstate um, sort of just how big a problem like that is. But in terms of actual impact on people, it's it, it, it doesn't seem to be as big as, as as it appeared from the outside, let's say. Yeah, there's a podcast that I really love. It's called Philosophize This, and um, it's just all about philosophy. And I can't remember what episode it was, but there was a specific philosopher that would talk about reality. And when breaking down, say, the first uh, 
the first conflict in the Gulf for the Americans, you know, you see footage on TV and he would say that, you know, the con the conflict is not real, right? Like it's not, it's not real. And really what you see is one perspective of the story from the journalist, right? And, and there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people that have their own perspective and story of the conflict right that never gets shared and so like you always see things from an incomplete perspective and it's very easy to yeah, it's very easy to just believe that like the perspective from this journalist is the reality of everything that's happening and not really question it when yeah reality is oftentimes a whole lot different than yeah, just a single piece of media yeah absolutely survived pre-flop boot camp you've shot the fish in a barrel now prepare yourself for the feeding frenzy a comprehensive strategy for gutting every fish in your player pool data-driven hero bluffs light call downs and perfect value bets that are maximally designed to hurt some feelings Feeding Frenzy. Available now at chasingpokergreatness.com slash feeding frenzy. Moving back to the poker arena, tell me the story of your favorite poker session ever or your most memorable poker session ever. Okay, well, I, I guess I'll pick an online one because um, that's mostly what I do. Obviously, I've had some great live uh, experiences too, but Online, um, this would this would have been almost ten years ago. Maybe it is ten years ago, and my sense of time is really warped now. But around ten years ago, my my main specialization online was playing satellites, and Tuesday was my favorite day of the week because um, stars would start running satellites for Super Tuesday, their one K event for midday. So I would get up early and I would grind all the satellites. And at the time, they had a system where if you qualified through a satellite for an event, you could unregister and you had uh, tournament dollars credited to your account. So that was essentially my bread and butter. I was making a fortune in the satellites. I was playing and I was using the tournament dollars to play $50 tournaments, $100 tournaments, etc. I wasn't playing the 1K. And I would play all the satellites up until the last one that would end before the tournament started so that I could unregister. And that would be my session from, from 12 to roughly just shortly before seven when super tuesday start got a feeling i know where this is going yeah so there was always one satellite which was the last one that would end uh just before so so i registered that and i um i it ran let's say it ran long unfortunately it ran into the main tournament so I won that satellite and now I'm thrown into the main tournament. <laughs> and I was extremely annoyed because I'm supposed my session is supposed to be over. I think I'd actually made arrangements to have dinner with my wife that night because that was always my night off. I, because I played 12 to 7, I can take the evening off. So I think I have to tell her, okay, I'm in this tournament now. I'm going to have to play it for however long it takes. So rescheduled the, the, the dinner reservation. It got rescheduled a few times past the point where we couldn't go out anymore. So I'm sitting there one tabling in a really bad mood going, this is nonsense. I didn't even commit to doing a proper session because I didn't want to play other tournaments. I just wanted to bust this one tournament. And, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, 
and be done for the day. But um, I mean, it's a 1K tournament, so you've got to take it seriously. It's not like you can just punt. So I'm I'm playing, I'm playing, and eventually reaches the point where she's she's like, okay, I'm off the bed now. So we can't even have dinner together. I'm eating my dinner sadly in front of my computer. <laughs> what an idiot i am for playing the satellite i mean even though like nine times out of ten it finishes before there is that one time in ten it doesn't and this is it um so it, it dragged on and on and um and I, actually we were traveling down the, the following day to a big full tilt tournament uh in galway uh so that was also impinging on me it was like i'm literally going to get zero sleep now uh before the drive to galway and anyway long story short i end up on the final table i end up chopping it three ways um for 85 grand despite the fact that i had like the worst mental attitude ever like do not want to be here want to bust this tournament want this to be done with shouldn't even be here what an idiot i am for for, for even being here um but yeah that ended up being my biggest online score and i remember finally going up to bed at like 9 a.m as my wife is, is is um is getting up and i said to her uh you're not going to believe this but i ended up chopping that tournament so she, she doesn't have that much sense of like how big anything is. So she said, oh, that's great. How much did you get? And I said, 85. And she said, oh, 8,500. That's really good. And I said, no, 85,000. And she said, oh, 85,000. That's, that's really good. And then she thought for about 30 seconds. And then she goes, oh, but it's only dollars, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you probably right back into it. It's like, yeah, it's not 85,000 euros, which is worth slightly more than 85,000 dollars. It is just dollars. But yeah, that was definitely the most memorable because didn't want to be there, shouldn't have been there, but ended up um, getting my biggest online score. I think there's really something to that. This like not having expectations or <laughs> devil may care attitude of whatever. Like I, I, I'm, I just want to bust this tournament so I can go have dinner with my wife. And then like you just keep progressing forward and forward. The opposite I found is just very, very true that if you have expectations of like, I'm going to do whatever they always, it always blows up in your face. Like it never goes the way that you plan for it to go. But then the opposite of like, yeah, I'm just, I just want to bust this tournament. And then you just go deep and chop it. That's an, it's an interesting story. And one that I've, I've actually heard from multiple people, Brian Rast, who Antonio Esfandiari begged him to play this like $1,500 tournament. And, and he's like, no, like I don't want to play this 1500 WSOP event. And, and he just like, as Fondiari kept, kept on and on and on. And he's like, fine. Like, you know, I'll give you a free roll. Like I'll, I'll, I'll give you a free roll. And Rast is like, no, nah, man, come on. And, and like the deal just kept getting better and better. And he's like, fine. Like I'll play this stupid pot limit, hold them tournament. And Two days later, he finds himself winning a gold bracelet at the WSOP for this pot limit tournament, this $1,500 pot limit tournament that he didn't even have 100% of himself in that he never really wanted to play. He takes down uh, and Esfarniari is validated, of course, because he he gets a a share of the prize pool, but it's just hilarious. He, He didn't want to play in it and then he takes it down. Yeah, I've I've heard so many of those stories. Um, um, Tony Dunst told us a similar one too, where he didn't want to play the Oz and Williams, and he only played it because Mike Sexton gave him a free roll, and uh, he thought it'd be funny to lose Mike's money (laughs) with a with a devil made care attitude, and ended up getting heads up. I think there's definitely something in that, and I think it's something that a lot of sports people understand that you can't that you want to be 
excited for a thing, but you but the, but you don't want to be too excited. And I see that time and time with poker again with poker, um, particularly recreational players, they get far too wound up about one tournament and they're going like, this is going to be the tournament, everything's going to be great for me. And then when it doesn't, they're devastated. There's a female player I used to work with who that was definitely her biggest leak. Everything, everything was like on the next tournament. It was like, this is going to be the one. Uh, it's all going to go great. Um, I've got my run good outfit and my run good coffee. And she had all these run good phrases. <laughs> and like it, then some, the tournament wouldn't go well or it would start badly and you know she'd be devastated. There was this constant emotional roller coaster. I remember when I was running 24-hour races um, for Ireland, the, the captain of the Irish team used to say, that the best preparation you could do for a 24-hour race is just to suddenly find yourself on the starting line and now you have to run it. Because the anticipation is terrible. The anticipation of what you're about to do to yourself. And conversely, you don't want to hype yourself up and, and be all excited because if you are, what will, what will inevitably happen is you'll, all that adrenaline will force you to go too, too fast at the start and you'll crash very, very quickly. So... I think sports people learn to sort of moderate their expectations and their emotional response to something that's happening. And poker players who can do that are much better off as well. They've got the guys that I coach who crush online and who do who perform best on big occasions, like big final tables. They're the guys who literally get the least excited about it. It's just another day for them. They're like, yeah, I'm just going to get up. I'm going to execute my strategy. Um, and I'm taking from there. And, and, and there, was, there was one guy I was coaching this year and he made the scoop main event final table. And I knew he was going to do well because I just knew his mentality of just being incredibly calm, not taking taking everything as it, as it came. But because it was his first big one and he wanted to do uh, an intensive session before he came back to the final table, um, we, we, we did a few hours before the final table started. But a lot of that time I devoted to what I would say the opposite, is the opposite of positive thinking negative thinking i said to him stuff like okay let's imagine that the very first hand you lose half your stack now what's that this is your new reality this is a new situation how are you going to react to that so he would think about that and he would think about how his range has changed now because he has half a stack etc etc so i tried to imagine everything that could go wrong on the final table and get him to sort of anticipate that in advance imagine your car dead for ages what are you going to do and he'd say well I'm just going to play my stack. I'm not going to change my ranges just because I've been card dead. I'm not going to try and force it, make it happen. So I think he probably would have executed anyway because he had a very good mentality. But on the final table, he was actually card dead for almost the entire final table. And he ended up, you know, playing perfectly, sticking to his game plan, executing, not getting frustrated, not making uh, impatient mistakes and uh, ended up chopping it. So that's, for, for me, that's the model. It's like, you really have to lower your expectations. You have to accept the fact that it might go wrong. You know, you might go in one of nine and you might bust out an eight. That happens a lot. Uh, and you haven't done anything wrong. All you can focus on continue, and continue to focus on is the process. But I think if you mentally prepare yourself for the bad stuff that can happen, and this is something that used to come from my coach as well. My coach, when we were preparing for a race, it was never like, you're great, you're wonderful, you've done all the training. It was always like, Imagine it's raining on the day. It's raining really badly and you're going to have to deal with that. Imagine you wake up and you have a stomach upset and you're going to have to deal with that. Imagine the race starts and you're, and you're not feeling great and all these things. And again, it is just to sort of prepare yourself so that if you face adversity in the, in the, in the heat of competition, you won't fall to pieces. Yeah, that is a 
greatness bomb and I'm likely going to be stealing that for my private coaching sessions. Um, it reminds me of there's a book called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Tlaib where basically he coins the, the word anti-fragile because it's the opposite of fragility where um, a coffee cup is in a fragile state because only bad things can happen to a ceramic coffee cup, right? Like it, it can only – if you drop it on the ground, it will fall totally into pieces and break and crack and like it, – so it's in a fragile state. And when you show up with expectations that everything is going to go well – you're showing up in a more fragile state because when things go bad, you have no answer or solution. You don't know how to overcome things going bad. So just like the coffee cup, you fall apart. Um, when you're prepared for the negative or for worst case scenarios or for even really just average case scenarios, um, then you're able to be more resilient, be more anti-fragile and overcome um, adversity then if your expectation is just you're going to sit down and like win every race and make perfect decisions across the board and everything's just going to work out all hunky-dory. Um, so yeah, that is that is a brilliant piece of coaching there, Dara. And um, yeah, your, your student is very lucky to have you there for that, you know, scoop main final table. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you said. The, the, I think the worst thing, and I think this is particularly true for tournament players, because the, it, it is never the case that you go, you sail through a tournament and everything goes perfectly. Um, even when you win the tournament, there will be periods. Like my biggest uh, live result in Vegas, I, I Max Vegas because I was doing some commentary. I was on a terrible table, so I started with a really bad mindset of like this, this, this was a terrible decision. Mm -hmm. um, I'm here with of the best players in the tournament and uh, I lost half my stack in the early levels and I basically ground the short stack for almost the entire tournament all the way to heads up never actually feeling that um, anything anything particularly good was going to happen but I see it with my with, with, with my less experienced students the ones who go in with the sort of attitude of like we have to get ourselves hyped up we have to think positively everything's going to be great we're going to win all the races our stack is just going to get bigger and bigger and we're going to win the tournament it never works out with that. And as soon as they face some adversity, those are the guys who are most likely to make the tilt and do some mistakes. And, you know, I mean, tournaments are a silly thing anyway. Like, you, you play perfectly and you bust well before yeah. the money. You play badly, like Jamie Gold did, and you can somehow end up winning. Um, but you still have to kind of accept that you're playing, that by playing the very best that you can always in every situation then you'll get to the end of your career having maximized your expectations. Um, and, and that's kind of what you have to focus on rather than, oh, I really want to win this tournament, so I hope I run good in this tournament. Yeah, I, I had this thought, and I've, I've mentioned a few times on the pod, but I want to mention it again that like tournaments are, poker tournaments, and even poker in general, is, is a kind of a hilarious game where you can be at a final table on the WPT playing for millions of dollars up top, and you have player A who has a spot or has a hand, a combo that they just have to run a bluff with. It's just like the perfect bluffing combo. And then player B has the perfect bluff catching combo. And so player B has to bluff catch. And, and so player A runs their bluff and gets hyped up for like, wow, what, what heart here? And then player B makes the, the call and gets the glory. And player A is like the foil who 
did something and lost all their chips. And now the commentators turn on him in an eye blink of like, wow, that was just not a great spot to run a bluff. And the reality is like if player B would have had player A's hand, it would have went down the same way. And like all the criticism would just be reversed. Both players did exactly what they're supposed to do. One person gets the hate. One person gets the glory. That to me is it's a hilarious aspect of poker that you don't really see in any other kind of competition. Yeah, I mean, as humans, we're just so results-based. And I saw this on one of the first commentaries I ever saw on TV. I, it was actually, I think, an Irish Open final table where somebody raised, and he was raising a lot, and he, he raised, and a, a guy behind him uh, on the button moved all in with 7-2 because he was like, I'm, I've had enough of this guy. And as they were covering it, it comes around to the guy. The guy moves all in with 7-2. The, the opener has like 9-6 suited or something. and the commentators go wild. They're like, this is amazing poker. He's picked up on the fact that that uh, the opener is weak and he's just gone for it. His cards don't matter. Goes around to the big blind. The big blind is kings. Snap <laughs> calls. The other guy falls. And, and the commentators immediately like to say, turn on the guy. What was he thinking? 7-2. <laughs> it's like, a minute ago you were saying this guy was the greatest genius ever. And now you're saying he's the biggest idiot ever because he moved all in with seven deuce. Just because of the fact that the big blind happened to have kings. Like, yeah, we're, 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 we are ridiculous creatures. We're really not well designed to play poker. No, we're... we're... We continually fight our humanity and our horrible cognitive biases and results-based thinking and all these things that we have as humans. Yeah, but that's what kind of, in my opinion, it makes poker a great game and it makes poker profitable and it, it just... Sure. It, the human bias is... Yeah, it, it's the ultimate thing in poker where humanity affects strategic decision making and our emotions our biases come into play and that's actually what makes poker the complex game that it is because you're having to navigate other human beings and other human beings are weird <laughs> we're just weird weird creatures yeah yeah i, I always think watching humans play poker when you understand how computers would play poker it's a bit like watching uh, chimpanzees riding bicycles it's like they're not very good at it but the fact that they're able to do it at all at all is kind of <laughs> amazing and it's really it's much more entertaining to watch than you know expert cyclists the the, the poor chimpanzees trying to figure out how to ride the bicycle um and yeah I, I kind of feel like we humans and poker are the same yes we're we're the chimpanzees riding a bicycle maybe that'll yeah. be the this show episode <laughs> title so i have a couple lightning round questions for you uh, have you made any purchases in the last year that's been ultra impactful to your poker game? And, and I want to also say that it doesn't necessarily have to be poker related. It could be fitness. It could be nutrition. Uh, it could be a, you know, knickknack. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to be really boring here. I, I, I bought a state-of-the-art computer, which is behind me, which runs uh, simulations 24-7. I used to try and run them on my regular computer, and they were incredibly slow. So just the number of spots I've been able to run in the last year uh, has has been very impactful. Uh, yeah, that's that's unfortunately the very dull answer to that one. What what kind of computer did you get? Do you do you even know? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible because I used to be an IT person. That's literally what I did before, um, and I used to be an expert in that. But it's 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 the kind of area that once you're out of it for a year, you might as well never have worked in it. I mean, I still understand the sort of concepts of how stuff work, but I don't know the specifics anymore. 
when I when I worked before poker as an IT consultant, I had a guy who was a hardware expert and he used to push computers together. And that process has actually continued into poker. When I'm putting together a poker playing a, a, a machine to play on, I'll tell him these are the programs I'm going to be running. I need a different I I need three different screens so I can see all the tables. And he puts it together for me. In this case, I just went off and told him, okay, I'm going to be running PO. I need this amount of uh, this amount of RAM and um, make make the processor as fast as possible. And he just he just put it together. It's funny because it may have been your co-host talking about his computer, but it was someone in recent memory. I did the I did the same thing. Like I I I, w- I will say that like a year and a half ago I bought a computer, uh, a brand new computer, because I was tired of waiting on things. Like I was tired of waiting on um, you know, whether it be Sims to pop up or video editing software or just whatever it was. Like I was I was just done. I was like I, I told my friend who's much smarter than me, uh technically, with computers if you were going to buy yourself a computer to last like the next five years, what would you buy? Um, and I don't care how much it costs. I just want the best one. And I have to say it is the best thing that I've bought like over the last few years. And I, I will never have a slow computer ever, ever again, because just the, the emotional value of not having to wait on stuff mm-hmm. is so huge and also on the flip side is like I can do whatever I want and like it never lags. I never have any sort of issues. And so like, yeah, for the listener out there, buy yourself a good computer uh, because it's it's amazing how much value that adds. Yeah, absolutely. It always surprised me when play when people play on substandard computers, and I did it myself for a while. And like, it costs you so much money. Uh, you know, the lag. And then you come back and you see that you folded aces. Like, how much does that cost you? Uh, and over the year, it's just so much. And it's just such grief as well having to keep dealing with that. It's definitely an area you don't want to skimp on. No. And I mean, the reality is they're not, even like the best computers these days are not like ultra expensive. They're cheaper than a really, a computer in like the 80s, right? The mid 80s computers cost more money Um than the computers today. Plus, when you factor in inflation, it's probably like four times as much. So, yeah, I remember paying two thousand. Uh, it, it would be roughly two thousand dollars. Two thousand dollars for my very first computer in the mid eighties, and it was like you wouldn't run. You wouldn't be able to run anything on it now. It's uh, it, 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 you, you know, your phone has more computing power. Yeah, and with inflation, that's probably like ten thousand dollars in in today's money. Um, so yeah, that's a. Uh, Tip for the audience, make sure you have a good computer. Don't just buy a crappy one to if you're gonna take poker seriously, run Sims, if you're gonna just, you know, do stuff like that, then make sure you buy. Invest in a good machine. What's a poker related thing people rave about that hasn't worked for you? And why do you think it didn't work? I mean, I, th- I think there are a lot of fads and I I'm naturally distrustful of a lot of the stuff. Uh, you know, like we we have our sort of gratitude phase where everybody's going around writing a gratitude journal and cold shower phase where cold showers are supposed to dramatically change your game but i mean i guess some all of these things have some value so um i would i, I wouldn't completely poo-poo them I, i'm going to go in a slightly different direction and say the thing which i think 
one of the biggest mistakes the poker industry has made is trying to push mixed games. For, for as long as I've been playing, they've been saying mixed games are the future. And the sites have put a lot of uh, money into trying to play mixed games, the all the series, etc. And then every year the World Series would have slightly less mixed games on the schedule and people would be up in arms saying, this is terrible, it's getting away from what poker really is. But the reality is the vast majority of the public do not want to play mixed games. And you can't force them to. You hold them as a nice, simple game, which everybody can learn in five minutes and play badly for the rest of their life. <laughs> and that works really well from an ecosystem point of view. So I think the poker industry has kind of shot itself in the foot slightly by emphasizing the idea that somehow mixed games are better or loftier than Hold'em. Um, like, there's nothing wrong with Hold'em. It's a very good game. I have tried all the other mixed games. I have enjoyed them to some extent, but not as much as Hold'em. And it always annoys me when people sort of talk about mixed games as like somehow better than Hold'em or more pure poker or whatever. They're just a different game. They're not as popular for a reason. And just get over it. Get over the fact that people like Hold'em. Yeah. I mean, so I like the... I like how mixed games are different and you're right. Like people always are like mixed games are the future. Mixed games are the future. And yet fewer and fewer mixed tournaments get spread every single year. And it's not like, it's not like the tournament directors have a vendetta against the mixed games. It's just, they don't, there's not as big of a market for them. And so because of that, they're just always more niche, right? It it, it reminds me a little bit of how some people will say that like all no limit hold them ought to go back to limit hold'em oh for my God, all, yeah. all of these reasons. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Let's first talk about the fact that most people hate playing limit hold'em. And let's start at that point first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've played nearly all the mixed games to some degree. And like, I'm obviously not an expert in any of them. But if I'm honest, some of them are just boring. <laughs> I mean, particularly the limit games. It's just like, okay, I bet you raised. I raise one more unit. It's like, it's just not the same visceral excitement as the No Limit game for me. And then, I mean, I get that stud is different and there's a there's a completely different skill set there where you have to sort of be able to see all the cards and adjust your strategy based on, 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 on what you can see, et cetera. And, and that's interesting on some level, but I think the betting structure is is is, is very important. And if it's, and limit holding is just for me. Limit holding is just the absolute worst game. And I started playing limit holding, but like I would, I think I'd rather draw my eyes out and <laughs> play limit holding for the rest of my life. Now it's just such a dull game. It really is. Yeah, I started out playing limit holding as well, and it never really it didn't resonate with me. Um, and now that I know a lot more about poker, I, I kind of see how. Yeah, it's just a game of like. You're, it's a game of pot odds and you're getting 12 to one so you can't fold and the other person is getting a good price to bluff so they have to bluff and it's like okay so that that's the game so anyway long story short it doesn't resonate with me and i don't think it resonates with most people out there in the world else it would have continued to stick around and be a large part of poker rooms it's not like it's not like the poker rooms have a preference to the games that they spread. They spread the games that the people ask for and people just ask for more no limit hold'em and that's why they spread so many no limit hold'em tables. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever strongly believed something about poker only to reverse course later on 
And if so, what led to that change of belief? Yeah, actually, I do. I, I spoke earlier about how my brother taught me to play at the start, and he taught me a very, very basic uh, tight strategy, which is a very, which is probably the best thing you can do when you're dealing with a starting player. You don't want to teach them to play loose because they'll just make more mistakes. But we had this very, very basic strategy, um, and it was a strategy that he played as well. It was very effective in Ireland because. For a start, at the time, tournaments in Ireland had no antis at any point. It was purely small blind and big blind, which obviously means you should play a, a tighter style anyway. Secondly, Irish players don't like playing tight. It doesn't matter how tight you play. You could sit there holding for four hours and they'll still give you action when you, when, when, when you open for the very first time. So it was a really effective strategy in Ireland um, to play this ridiculously nitty strategy. Went over to Vegas the first time and we got absolutely crushed. Um, tournaments were faster, the structures were faster, there were antis, and we weren't adjusting our ranges. And typically what would happen whenever we played a tournament was we'd get to the break, we'd have added a small amount to our stack because we'd have picked up some good hands and won some pots. But we get to the second break and now we're short because lines have mounted up and we, and we wouldn't get to the third break because we'd shove and we'd get calls. And this was... As the trip went on, I started thinking more and more, we must be doing something wrong. Uh, it, we can't just be running bad. And there was one guy at our table in the Nike tournaments. He was only playing the Nikes at the time. We didn't see him in any of the bracelet events, but he was this very chatty, voluble Canadian guy who had a very nice man bag, I remember. <laughs> and he was playing 50% hands. And he would open and somebody would shove and he would shrug and say, I'm priced into call and turn over Jack 10 suit. And sometimes he'd get there, sometimes he wouldn't. But he almost invariably, when we were when we bust, he was still in the tournament with a large stack. So we were walking back to our hotel one day, and I said to um, to my brother, that guy over there, he's there every night. He's playing a completely different style to us. We're doing something wrong. He's doing something right. We need to figure it out. And my brother was adamant. He was like, no, no, no. He's just a donkey. You should see the shit the shit hands he turns up with, and he calls all in with Jack Ten Suzes and. And all this other stuff. Uh, and I was saying, like, but like, it was all speak for himself. Like, he's there every night. Um, so we had this huge argument. And it was kind of like the moment at which I re realized my brother is not my teacher anymore. I'm going to have to find out new information. And I sort of, I went off and studied. I did my own mathematical research, et cetera. And I, 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 I worked out why the guy's style was correct. It was because of the antis and, and fast structure and people overfolded and pot and, and potheads, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as an aside, I didn't know who the guy was at the time, but a few years later, I saw him at the series, and he had risen all the all, all the all the stakes, and he was now playing uh, bracelet events. And he, it was Mike Lea, the, the Canadian tournament great. Um, but we saw him literally at the Genesis, where he had this style which was different from everybody else, but was incredibly effective. So Mike Lea was actually a an unwitting or <laughs> an accidental major influence in my poker career. Well. It's interesting that like when somebody's doing something that's different from the way that you think about poker and they're experiencing success, a lot of times you're served well by asking like, what must they know? Because they must know something. They're not just clicking buttons arbitrarily, especially if it's like a high level thinking player and investigating that is, yeah, it's a great way to improve and learn and grow just as a poker player. As an aside, I would say, to poker platforms that are out there in the world. You know, we talked about the mixed games, right? They spent a lot of money bringing in mixed games. 
Yet, I don't see a lot of variations of cash games. I don't see antes in cash games. I don't see different structures. And that is something that you can add that will actually change the game to where the recreational players aren't as bad. Because when you add in antes, right? Because I played on uh, an app one of the infamous Asian apps that have uh, three blinds and everybody antes. And what happened was limping is actually not the worst strategy when you're getting great pot odds. You, you can afford to play many more. You're supposed to play many more hands. And when the average cost per, per orbit goes up, the nits get punished. And this is something that like you would think that online poker platforms would intuitively seek and want and yet i don't see much changing in the structure of cash games as far as like adding in antes that you know basically make it just reduce the natural edge of like the pros and the recs and really i just see platforms complaining about the skill gap uh, all the time and you know how do we reduce the skill gap that's what i see but i don't see much innovation as it relates to like the structure of these games and the reality is when you add in the antes it's more action. It's more fun. The pots are bigger. And like, basically it's just a win across the board. And I can't for the life of me understand why platforms don't roll out different, different structured cash games. Yeah. I heard you talking about this on a recent show. And I thought it was a brilliant, it was a brilliant idea because we've seen it on the tournament side. The tournament side has been kept alive by constantly revising structures um, so that the skill gap isn't as big. Um, stuff like PKOS, for example, bounty tournaments, that, that's been a godsend because that has completely fundamentally changed the strategy and um, also pushed it towards a situation where you play a naturally more fun style, much looser. But we, you're right, we haven't seen it on the cash side and it's quite interesting. Like, I mean, there are some, there have been some attempts like the splash pot idea, for example, which I think, I think it originated on Run It Once and now some of the other sites like Party have introduced it as well. Like a student sent me a spot recently where there was like a hundred dollars added to the pot because of the splash, and you know, three guys shoved for twenty dollars, and he's got ten four suited, and he's like, I think this is a call now because of the extra hundred dollars, and th- like that's a lot of fun, um, and it creates action. You know, it forced three guys to put all of their stack in the middle in a, in, in a spot that they never would. So yeah, I think you're completely right. I. I'm not even sure why that is, um, because they have definitely made an effort on the tournament side, um, but we haven't seen the same effort on the cash side. And you do hear sites continually complaining about how cash is is struggling because the skill differential is too big. And we actually had Mason Malmut on one of our shows too, talking about purely about antis, how antis are important so that the the, the 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 you're incentivized to play more hands and the skill differential is big. So I don't know why the sites have have not caught picked up on this. And it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting one. Yeah, it just I think a lot of the platforms would just rather complain than try to <laughs> address any issues. That's that's sort of like my feeling from the outside is like that they would just rather complain publicly about stuff instead of like trying to innovate and do stuff. I mean ultimate bet back in the day, you know, 2006, 2007, they had do seven offsuit tables where you put two big blinds like over your head. And if you win the pot with do seven off, like everybody gives you two big blinds. And 
that made the game more fun. It, it added an extra strategic element that, yeah, the pros and the Rex are both trying to like figure out like, how, what do I do? Right. It's like, you know, you're playing three, six and all of a sudden somebody opens for like 80 pre and you're like, Whoa, like, do, are, is it like a seven Dewey or is it like <laughs> yeah. aces? Um, so like, it just adds in this fun element that like it's there. They, they did it 15 years ago. So I know they can do it today and sure. they just don't. And that's sort of, it, it just dumbfounds me. All right, Dara, it's been great having you on. I'm sure we'll run this back more specifically when you and Barry finish your third book, probably in the next year or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so many broken promises on that book. We, we it, it, it was supposed to come out last year. Then it was going to come out in time for the Unibet Open. Then it was going to come out in time for the Chip Race Tournament. All those promises got broken, unfortunately. But it, it will, it will see the light of day sometime. Yeah, I have a book idea in my head too. And I think, well, if I get everything kind of put together, it should only take me a few months. And then I, I also have that like little voice that's like behind that. That's like, you fool, shut up. Like, it's, <laughs> you're going to have to allocate much longer than you think you will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, everything everything always takes longer, unfortunately. Yeah. So to give you one last plug here, um, What's a project that you're working on that's near and dear to your heart, even though I've got a pretty good feeling, maybe besides you and Barry's new book and the video series you're working on? Yeah, I mean, it definitely would be the video series because that is the final and complete brain dump. I will never have to do another strategy piece on satellites after this because everything is going in there. Um, apart from that, that's a good question. Like, we we obviously added the lock-in this year um, as a just because it was relatively easy for us to do. We just turn on our webcams for an hour and chat. Um, and that, that's been fun, even though it's very different from the chip race. The chip race sort of benefits from how edited it is and how well composed it is, let's say, each episode. Most of the, like nearly all the credit for that needs to go to David because he's the one who does all that stuff. But, and I mean, I'm hesitant to say this because I've barely started on this project, but I do want to do some non-strategy writing so I've had the idea, and I, but I don't want to do like a full autobiography that just seems ridiculous. Um, but I thought I, I thought about like some specific aspect of my life as a poker player, and one of the ideas I had was writing about all the WSOPs that I went to and how experience was different at each one and how the poker world was changing around me. Um, so I so I've done a little bit of work on that, and you know I have a lot of good stories from Vegas as well, stuff that I left out of the blog for for fear of offending people at the time that I might be able to put back in. And yeah, but if I did something like that, I think I would I would want to be just like completely honest, not sugarcoat anything. Um, so it might be the kind of thing I might be better off waiting until I'm about to exit poker. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I don't upset people who find out that I didn't really think that all that much of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you, you lose all of your past, you, you lose... All of your chip race guests wanting to come on the show, you you just yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's always concerned. I mean, we already have David going around like a wrecking ball in the in the poker world, picking up enemies left, right, and center. If I if I start doing that too, uh, we could we could find ourselves with a very shrinking guest list. Yeah, I mean, David came on the show. His episode, yeah, it, it'll be released a few weeks before yours, and he told me that 
he doesn't consider himself uh, antagonistic and he, he just does it to do it. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm unconvinced. <laughs> I'm unconvinced that that's the reality, but you know, I guess the listener can decide for themselves. Yeah. I mean, to be fair to David, I mean, I think he definitely enjoys, it. he definitely enjoys a good fight, but at the same time, I don't think that's, that's ever the motivation. He does genuinely feel strongly about the decisions that he takes. And he is a very, very principled person underneath it all. And he's also very misunderstood, it's fair to say. People do see the brash, loud mouth shouting at everybody, but actually like underneath it, he's a teddy bear. He's, he's a very loyal friend. Um, and, he, and, and he has very, very strong moral principles for sure, which again, a lot of people don't necessarily yeah. see. I mean, I, I think that's probably the reason why so he releases some of the stuff that he does. And just, you know, for the listener, after um, David came on, KL Clayton was scheduled right afterwards. And yeah, me, David and KL kind of just sat around and talked for 25 minutes, like after his, his and I's episode ended. And yeah, David is, he's a good guy. I think that at the end of the day, he he's a genuinely good person that, you know, in my opinion, probably I think he gets gets a little something from the controversy. I think he yeah. he I he think he's it. lying to himself if he tr- tries to say that he doesn't enjoy it because I have to imagine he enjoys it. It gets the, it definitely gets the blood flowing for, for David for sure. But 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 he will never do it just just to do it. And he and he he doesn't pick easy soft easy targets as well. He goes after people he knows that he's going to have blowback from and. Yeah, he takes that on the chin. So you kind of have to respect that. And he, yeah, he's um, like, he's not a bully. I mean, he sometimes gets accused of being a bully, but he definitely isn't a bully. Um, He goes after big targets. Um, He He punches up. He punches up for sure. He always punches up. Yeah. He he doesn't pick on, 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 on soft, easy targets, which, which you have to respect. And like, I've known David for 10 years now and he's, in that time, he's been my closest friend and remained my closest friend in poker. He's in, he's an incredibly good friend. He's really, really loyal. He's very supportive. And he's also the kind of guy that you can have an argument with. You can, we would absolutely scream at each other. Not so much recently. We tend to sort of get on and everything now. But in the early days, we would have huge screaming arguments. And then it would be over. It's like, and even if we didn't agree, we, we, we would agree to disagree. And occasionally, we, we, we both argued so well that we, we both changed the, the person's opinion to the opposite opinion and now we have to have the argument from the opposite side again but um i, I like the fact that, that i can literally say anything to him and he won't take it personally and we'll be able to um talk it out he's he's also very communicative you know if, if, if he pisses me off i will tell him and we will have a, an immediate uh, discussion and sort it out similarly if i do something that pisses him off he won't go off and sulk about it he'll he'll, he'll tell me and uh, and we'll talk it out yeah i mean that's just a sign of maturity. Um, and so final question, my friend, where can the chasing poker greatness audience find more about Dara O'Kearney on the worldwide webs? Yeah, there's a couple of places. I guess the central hub is always Twitter because I do tweet all, all, all my stuff, shamelessly self-promoting. I do have all the social media. I'm on Facebook as well. Um, and I have, uh, Instagram as well, which is kind of just the diary of my day, my story. I have a blog, obviously, which I continue to maintain. And uh, that has links to other stuff like my free strategy newsletter, etc. 
I have um, an Ask Me Anything thread specifically on satellites and PKO strategies on card chat. Card chat, that's a good place to hit me up if you have a question about satellites or PKOs. I mean, sometimes people contact me through social media, but I would rather that they do it there because then that benefits everybody who reads the thread. Yeah, so those are the, those are the major ones. And if you have a question about satellite strategy with Dara, buy his video series and hold your question because he's answering every single question that you could possibly ever have. Yeah, absolutely everything. Uh, it doesn't matter how obscure the spot is or how rare it comes up. Um, it's pretty much all in there. Everything I know before I gradually slide into senility and um, <laughs> and lose all that and lose all my value to the poker world. And if you're a clever person, which I'm assuming you are a clever person that ask me anything thread likely has yielded some great questions and opportunity to answer you know, the most frequently asked ones over and over and over again. So like you're, you know, that, that gives you a direct connection to answer questions directly from your audience, which yeah, is is just good because I think as creators and experts, sometimes we overlook some of the more obvious questions because we we're just like make an assumption um, that everybody knows what we're talking about, or it just seems so obvious to us, but that's not always the case. Yeah, I, I, w- I will just give a general shout out to the Cards Chat community. It's an amazing community. And I've gotten to know the people who sort of run it, uh, people like Debbie. And they have a, a unique approach, I think, to this sort of stuff where it's it's a friendly community for recreational players who want to get better. They don't tolerate people screaming insults at each other uh, because they shouldn't have checked raised the clock or whatever. <laughs> it's it's a very, very respectful community. It's, it's uh, very warm. It's genuinely global reach like i've had questions from people from south america from asia on that thread um it's a really great community if you're a recreational player and you're looking for somewhere friendly to try and improve and learn i think that's a great place like i have a thread there ryan the plant has a thread there there's a lot of um pros who, who, who contribute to strategy there because it's a really friendly community awesome man um that's card chat and all, all of the links will be on the show page so that you, the listener, can click through and check it all out. Dara, it's been great having you. Always fun have you back on, you know, sometime later on this year, uh, maybe even sooner. Who knows? Absolutely. And we will absolutely have you on the next series of the Chip Race. I have continually badgered David to get you on, and I have no idea why it's taken so long. Um, you are one of the people that I most want to get on the show because it'll be interesting to turn the tables and uh, get to talk about Brad. I, I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, that, that'll be out, uh, I believe, in your next season, right? It's going to be recorded in a couple of months. So Yeah, we're taking kind of a break now. We've just uh, we've recorded our 100th episode, which, which you contributed to as well. And um, in fact, you, you contributed to absolutely the best question. And we will, uh, but we're taking a kind of a hiatus or break then before we come back for our next season. And we've never been, I mean, I have incredible respect for you, the number of shows that you turn out. It's just amazing. Um, we are not like that. We do 21 shows a year. Well, I, I appreciate the kind words. And you asked me, you sent me a direct message on Twitter asking me if I would provide a question and you have to be careful because I take requests like that fairly seriously as a professional question asker. Um, and it actually took me four or five days of just kind of 
you know, I, I thought about it. I, I meditated on it and then I just kind of let it go. And then one night I was like, ah, I got it. Um, it recorded it and sent it off. Yeah, no, it really showed that we appreciated the thought you put into that um, rather than just like, what's the first question that pops in my head? Like w- one question we got asked a lot was like, uh, who's your least favorite guest? <laughs> Again, I think maybe that was people just trying to turn the tables on David and get and and put him on the spot. But um, but yeah, no, greatly appreciated. Should have asked who who's your least favorite co-host to David. I think that would be a. <laughs> yeah, I mean we 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 pick on poor Ian because he's he's just in the new segment, um, and it's because he's such a good natured person that that that, that he can take it, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, least least favorite guest is, is probably not a question that any any podcast host would like to answer. Publicly. No, I mean everybody has given you their time, so they deserve uh, they don't deserve to be called out as their least favorite guest. Yeah, guest guest is taken very seriously, right? They're a guest on your platform, and so they ought to be treated with respect. I agree completely, Dara. It's been great having you, man. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very Thank you. much. Talk talk yeah. next time. Yeah, you too. Good luck. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do, one man Coach Brad Wilson has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. Rated R.